Greetings Northlings and welcome to Haunted Up North, the far too ASMR to be considered truly frightening podcast dedicated to the telling of real life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK. I'm your host Victoria and I apologise for not introducing myself last time. I forgot and I had a guest on which was distracting enough to make me lose track of my own identity as well as the importance of it. But even so, I do hope you found yourselves scintillated, scared and most importantly entertained by the spectral tales we told you last time and by the spectral tales I'm about to tell you today via the medium of my own identity. A far more interesting subject to talk about is the subject of today's episode, episode number 13. Unlucky for some? The subject of today's episode is none other than Chillingham Castle. Makes me feel cold just saying it. Chillingham Castle, the best haunted castle name ever, in my opinion. I'm sure there are others that are just as good. Why don't you email me and tell me about them, guys? I've eaten quite a lot of fizzy blue bottles today, by the way. Not explosive insects, guys. The pink and blue cola bottle-shaped sweets. Sweets. So beware, there's a big possibility of some curious sentences being uttered on Haunted Up North today. Episode number 13. I'm lucky for some. This is because, you know, this is due to the amount of sugar and whatever else ingredient that begins with an E that's contained within fizzy blue bottles that I've consumed thus far. I'm also, at the time of this recording, really excited by life because last night was uh, Eurovision. So that was Saturday night, 14th of May, the day after Friday the 13th of May, weirdly. Unlucky for some. But it wasn't unlucky for lovely Sam Ryder, who represented the UK in Italy this year. Although I'm heartily glad that Ukraine won, Sam Ryder, who came second for the UK, really gave my evening meaning. Because I I absolutely love the Eurovision Song Contest, and I watch it every year, and although I don't have to have that element of competition with regards to hoping that my country wins over another country, I just love watching it. But this year, Sam Ryder really changed the face of Eurovision. He proved, beyond a doubt, that if you take your entry seriously, you perform brilliantly, and you deliver, let's face it, a pretty good song it will get voted for. People aren't stupid. And he really did inject such a tone of positivity that I'll remember for a long time to come and that I'm massively grateful for. Because it was just dead nice, wasn't it? It felt like a different Eurovision. One where everybody was basically happy for everybody. So I hope next year we do just as well for the right reasons. So shout out to Sam Ryder, 2022 UK entry for the Eurovision Song Contest. And thank you especially for the surprise guitar at the end. I salute you. Also, it's not just about Eurovision and explosive blue bottles as to why I'm also on a bit of a jolly high today. Because although I'm incredibly late to the party here, I've only just, this week, at the time of this recording anyway, just finished watching series two. That's season two for everyone else. But I still like to call TV shows with more than one episode a series because it reminds me of my childhood. 
Series two of Bridgerton over on uh, Netflix. That's what I've just finished watching this week, and I'm still a bit emotional and slightly embarrassed that I cried my eyes out to an instrumental version of Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball. I never thought that would happen in my life. But yeah, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't had a chance to see series two yet, so I won't go on about it too much, apart from to say that although I enjoyed the first series of Bridgerton, this series, this second series, was my favourite, because it was old school Pride and Prejudice romance with some real female badassery. And Jonathan Bailey, the guy who plays Anthony Bridgerton, was so convincingly and mesmerisingly Darcy-esque opposite Simone Ashley and her spellbinding presence that it just ticked all the period drama love story boxes for me without being a carbon copy of everything else already gone before. I really liked it, guys. So yeah, I'm mentioning that because I'm still basking in the Bridgerton 2 glow whilst under the influence of all of the above. I'm... yeah. But speaking of Bridgerton, I also wanted to talk about the soundtrack to that particular show because it's very heavily influenced by very beautifully put together string versions of contemporary or semi-contemporary chart songs. Pop music, if you will. The modern music and instrumental versions of the modern music appear throughout Bridgerton. And there's such lovely arrangements that I know a few of my friends have been listening to the Bridgerton soundtrack, which is basically pop songs performed via the medium of violins. However, if any Bridgerton fans out there listening who've enjoyed the soundtrack and would like to hear more of the same, not the same, rather, but similar, then check out a guy called Ed Allen Johnson. Ed Allen Johnson is a British electric violinist. The electric violin is purple, by the way, which makes the whole thing not just cool, but extra cool. He's an electric violinist who busks upon the English streets of York and Chester, and I've I've actually met him before. He seems really nice. But if you're ever in either of those two cities, look out for him, or rather, keep an ear out for him. I think he's still knocking about. Busking, I mean. He does write his own melodies, but he also does amazing cover versions of similar songs that you've watched the cast of Bridgerton dancing to. You can find him on Spotify, along with his entire discography, which, like I said, is a lot of his own original music, but if it's Bridgerton-style stuff you're specifically looking for, then listen to the two albums entitled Echoes and Reflections. That's two albums. Two owls. Two albums, you've got a party. One called Echoes and one called Reflections. I think my favourite track is probably his rendition of U2's With or Without You on the 2005 album Echoes. So get it in your ears. Get it in all your ears and enjoy. Even if you don't like Bridgerton, just have a listen anyway. It'll light up your life. That's Ed Allen Johnson, electric violinist, and I'll add a link to the source material so you can find him. Interesting fact about Ed, he was briefly a member of the English rock band New Model Army, who are from Bradford, actually, which means they originate not so far from where I currently live in Haworth. Ed's not from Bradford, he's from Liverpool. But anyway, he played that cool, distinctive violin riff on probably one of their most famous singles, Vagabonds. So listen to Vagabonds as well, and you'll know who I mean. His whole style's very distinctive. You know it's Ed Allen Johnson as soon as you hear him, so check him out. He's great. Listening to instrumental versions of songs is a handy alternative to listening to songs with lyrics in if, like me, you have a job where you have to write all day and not get distracted by the words of others, but would still prefer not to sit in silence, so I would also recommend all of that to anyone else who lives this sort of, um... (laughs) 
hedonistic lifestyle. <laughs> That's a joke. Obviously, it's a joke. A rubbish joke. And I'm going to stop talking about it now. Slight detail there away from Chillingham Castle. Terrible. Another terrible intro. But all the information in it is pretty good. If you can search through the rubbish of me. Chillingham Castle, along with Ed Ellen Johnson, means a heck of a lot to me, as I've visited it many times during childhood. As it's situated in Northumberland, England, where my family and I would holiday just about every year for literally decades, and I recently went back up there, literally just about um, a couple of weeks ago, when I was staying at the Old Ship Inn in Seahouses, which is a little fishing village just down the road from Bambra, about half an hour's drive from Annick, and one of the most beautiful places to stay in the UK. The Northumberland coastline is ridiculously dramatic and riddled with history, and it's a perfect place to visit, especially in the summer if you're into sand dunes and golden beaches. It's basically like Cornwall, but with more castles and less people. The lighthouses on Farne Islands and the stories of Victorian heroism, which if you're familiar with the area, you'll know that I'm talking about Grace Darling, who was a lighthouse keeper's daughter who helped save nine people from the wreck of a paddle steamer called the Forfarshire in 1838. It's a very famous story. And she lived on one of the lighthouses. It's the only... No, it's not. Hang on. Yeah, she lived on Longstone Island, which is an island in the Farns. It's in the Outer Farns, and she lived in a in Longstone Lighthouse, which is still there. It's one of two working lighthouses in the Farns. The other one's on Inner Farn. But yeah, she helped save nine people from the wreck of a paddle steamer called the Forfarshire. And one of the original nameplates of the Forfarshire is on display at the old ship inn where I stayed. If you're up that way and ever want to pop in to look at it. But Grace Darling is someone I won't talk too much about just yet, even though I want to, because I'm very passionate about her story, so much so that I often find myself crying when I'm talking about her, so <laughs> not today, <laughs> but another day. But yes, that area of Northumberland is a fabulous place to live, because of Bambra, because of seahouses, its lovely little harbour, the Farne Islands, and Lindisfarne Castle too, over on Holy Island, which, along with Bambra Castle, you can also see from seahouses. There's Dunstanborough Castle too, in the village of Craster, well known for its infamous Craster Kippers, or Craster Crippers, as my granddad used to call them. And the coastal village of Beadnell's there, with its historic lime kilns dating back to the mid-1700s. And weirdly, well not weirdly, interestingly, Russell Fields from the band Shawadiwadi used to own a guesthouse there, right next to the lime kilns. And I think the guesthouse is still there, but I don't know... I don't know if he still runs it, but I remember as a kid peeping through the windows and catching a glimpse of his gold discs hanging up on the walls. It's one of those places that has loads of interesting things to do that are all within about half an hour of each other. Far more places and interesting things to do than I've listed here, but you get the picture. What more could you ask for? That isn't a rhetorical question, by the way, because it does in fact have an answer. And the answer to that question is... Ghosts. You could ask for ghosts, and if you've tuned into this podcast, I imagine that's exactly what you'll be wanting, isn't it? Well, there are lots of ghosts in Northumberland, so Northumberland ghosts will return as a hot, haunted-up-north topic in upcoming episodes, I assure you. But for now, we're going to focus on Chillingham Castle, because as far as haunted Northumberland castles go, this is probably considered the spookiest of them all. 
I'm sure there are those of you listening who might disagree with this if you have your own favourite spooky castle, so please do contact me on hauntedupnorth at gmail.com to tell me about any of your real-life haunted Northumberland castle encounters. But in the meantime, let me tell you a little bit about the history of Chillingham Castle. Chillingham Castle is medieval in origin, or as posh people might say, medieval, and it dates back to the late 12th century when it was originally a monastery. I don't know how a posh person would say monastery, probably exactly the same. King Edward I, otherwise known as Edward Longshanks, who we mentioned back in episode number two about Conway Castle in North Wales, stayed there in 1298 on his way to fight a Scottish army headed by Mel Gibson. Sorry, not Mel Gibson, William Wallace, otherwise known as Mel Gibson. Sorry, no, I mean, I don't mean Mel Gibson, I mean Braveheart. A Scottish army headed by Braveheart. And he stayed here because Chillingham Castle at the time was in a strategically important location back then, as it was situated on the border between the two feuding nations of England and Scotland, and it was used as a staging post for English armies entering Scotland. For this reason, it was also regularly attacked by Scottish armies and raiding parties. In some parts, the castle's fortifications were as much as 12 feet thick. Can you imagine that? That's like two six-foot-tall people, thick, so pretty sturdy. In 1344, Edward III gave permission for some battlements to be built on it, meaning that at this point it was considered a fully fortified castle. In 1617, however, when James I of England slash James VI of Scotland ascended the throne, relations between the two countries, when they were officially united under one king, gradually became more peaceful and Chillingham Castle was slowly transformed from military stronghold to a more residential status. During the Second World War, it was used as an army barracks when much of its decorative wood was stripped out and burned by the soldiers residing there, and after the war, it began to fall into even greater disrepair, until in 1982, it was bought by Sir Humphrey Wakefield, second baronet. From the 15th century onwards, it was the seat of the Grey and Bennett family, and Sir Humphrey's wife is descended from the Greys of Chillingham, which is how I guess he came to purchase and restore it, to the glorious tourist attraction that it is today. Side fact, Earl Grey Tea is thought to have been named after Charles Grey, 2nd Earl of Grey, who was British Prime Minister from 1830 to 1834, for a myriad of different reasons I won't go into, but that's quite a funny little fact amongst all the castle facts. The castle, by the way, is a grade 2 listed building and it's full of stuff. Like, full of flipping stuff. It's basically like if my dad was rich enough to buy a castle and fill it with all his antiques and curiosities. Sir Humphrey himself is a collector of antiques and curiosities and he's obviously very proud of them and wants to show them off to you inside his beloved castle, which is fair enough. But really, it's got so much inside it. It's not exactly a hoarder's paradise, because each room is set up very carefully in line with what it was originally used for. It's like an organised chaos, without really being chaotic. It's just cool. And there's a gorgeous maze garden out the back, as well as a very atmospheric tea room, which we'll come back to in a bit, with a blazing fire that sends proper (laughs) Witcher-style sparks up into the chimney every time it's stoked. It's fab. 
Chillingham Castle is also famous for its wild cattle, which are a separate attraction from the castle itself, but these cattle have been a fixture of Chillingham for 700 years. They're one of the rarest breeds of animals, uh, the only wild cattle in the entire world, and according to the Chillingham Castle website, the sole survivors of herds that once roamed the forests of Britain. They are definitely wild and potentially rather dangerous, so if you want to go and look at them, you need to book an appointment at Chillingham Cattle, not Castle, <laughs> ChillinghamCattle.com, where a warden takes you around in a Jurassic Park style trailer type thing with clear sides. They're very unusual looking things, these cattle. Uh, for some reason, I think I may have seen them when I was a kid in the days when perhaps you were allowed to go up to them behind fences, but I may have imagined that, I'm not sure. But they are strange. There, there are about 130 of them and they're all white and they're so striking and a little bit scary. I don't know why, but if, if you do fancy a look, either Google them or book in a visit yourself, because I think that's what I'll be doing next time I'm up there anyway. I want to see them through the Jurassic Park style trailer sides. Like a, it's like the British version of a safari. <laughs> Still cool. It's got a good torture chamber, you know, Chillingham Castle. And when I say good, I mean horrible, because I always measure a castle's worth by the quality of its dungeon or torture chamber, and this one is quite a, a scary one. It's long and cold, with all kinds of nasty torture equipment in there. I'm not condoning torture, but, you know, you still can't help but look, can you? But the Chillingham Castle dungeon is truly dark and chillsome, so I'll put some photographs of it on social media so you can see what I mean. Along with the dungeon, the main sections of the castle consist of an armoury, the still room, which is a room filled with various historical artefacts, if I've got the right room, um, including Christmas cards from the Queen, and old family photos. A medieval courtyard, the Great Hall, in which various scenes from the 1997 film Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett were filmed. A roof garden lookout. Edward I's room, which is the most ancient state room in the castle. The King James I room. The plaque room library. The new dining room, which in King James I's time would have been a room for the king to sleep and wash in. The museum. The chapel. The minstrel's hall, which is a tea room. And the torture chamber, which is ah, which is actually what I thought was the dungeon, but it's not. It's the torture chamber. That's the long, cold room. The dungeon is apparently a little room called the oubliette, a word which will forever remind me of the film Labyrinth. Um, an oubliette with a trapdoor in the ground with some apparently real bones underneath that you can see with your eyes. However, I don't remember seeing this room for myself with my eyes, so I must have missed it somewhere, which is unfortunate. However, it's, it's more reason to go back isn't it? I did manage to catch what looks like prisoner etchings on some of the stonework, which is apparently a trademark of the dungeon, which I found inside a small barred-off room behind the torture chamber, and you can see some sort of incised lines that form a, a diary of poor past inmates who were thrown into the oubliette, if that's what it is. So I'll upload those as well in the absence of dungeon bones. It's a shame I didn't get the bones. Or perhaps that little room at the back of the torture chamber was the dungeon, because there were some bones in it that I presumed were fake, but they looked like they were embedded into the ground. However, I didn't see whether there was a trapdoor above it or not, because apparently the, the dungeon has a trapdoor above it. Hmm. But if, any, if anyone knows where the dungeon in Chillingham Castle is, let me know, so it can all make sense in my head. <laughs> I'm quite dismayed that I, I've, I've missed that. Obviously, it's somewhere in the castle. I just want to know where, and if I've got the right place. And if my etchings are prisoner etchings, then my bones are real bones. 
Moving on. Shut up now. There's lots of history attached to each of these areas in the castle, whatever the names are, so it won't surprise you to know that most of them are haunted, or are reported to be haunted. William Wallace, otherwise known as Mel Gibson. In the gift shop, there's a little pamphlet written by Lady Tankerville in 1925. By this point, the noble Greys and Bennets had become the Earls of Tankerville, and seeing as Sir Humphrey, who wrote the foreword for this pamphlet, doesn't specify which Lady Tankerville it's written by, I'm guessing from the date that she's possibly Leonora Sophia Van Marta, who was married to George Montague Bennet. I'd say, the seventh Earl of Tankerville. Oh, she is. It is her. Uh, sorry, I've just sinned. She's printed a name at the end of the pamphlet. Yes, and so it is. It's Leonora Tankerville. Sorry. Silly. So it's her. Yes, but this pamphlet, written by Lady Tankerville in 1925, she details her experiences, almost a century ago from now, her experiences with the ghosts of Chillingham Castle, as well as experiences of various acquaintances who've encountered paranormal activity within the castle themselves. She begins by describing an incident she witnessed herself when, while sitting in her bedroom, a cluster of stones suddenly fell from out of a chamber wall to reveal two skeletons of a man and child that no one could explain the presence of. Years later, more bones were discovered in a walled-up dungeon, and the workmen engaged in opening this area up fled in fear when they came upon the perfectly preserved figure of a seated man whom they initially mistook for a living being, until it abruptly crumbled and turned to dust as soon as it was exposed to the air. The room Lady Tankerville's talking about here, according to the Chillingham Castle website, is now the chapel, and that's what it once was, and has since been restored to the room of worship that it once was. The bones aren't there anymore, they were removed and placed in something called the ossuary? I'm not sure what that is. Possibly it's some sort of tomb or graveyard, vaulty type thing, and if anyone knows what that is, please let me know. However, at the time of Lady Tankerville's narrative, this room, it seems, was a bedroom, though the website has it down as being a library at one point. But in a pamphlet, her pink pamphlet, she says that the room in which the two skeletons were discovered was her bedroom, but the website says the skeletons were discovered in the chapel, which was at one point a library, so I'm a bit confused. However, it's definitely now a chapel, and I've been inside this chapel. And guess what I went and Roddywell captured? I captured a wild castle. Not really. It was in fact an orb. And the reason why I took a video of this particular room is because as I was wandering about the Great Hall, the very helpful tour guide there told me about some of the ghosts that he'd seen in the castle, including the apparition of an old lady standing beside the fireplace in said Great Hall, who vanished as he headed towards her, but left behind the scent of roses. But he also said he has too heard the sound of children playing inside the chapel. Not human ones ghost ones. And other witnesses have also heard the disembodied sound of two men talking from within this room, who immediately cease their conversation when anyone tries to locate where their voices are coming from. 
But another interesting anecdote that this very helpful tour guide told me is that there have been a lot of orbs recorded in the chapel, hence the reason I took the video, but that the orbs disappear from the footage in which they're captured once the device upon which they're filmed reaches a distance of six miles away from the castle. How odd! But the orb I captured didn't, and although I didn't hear any voices inside the chapel, I'm quite impressed I captured something that might be an orb. The fact it stayed there in the footage, even though I'm now more than six miles away from the castle, may mean it's not actually an orb, but obviously I'm going to upload it to our Haunted Up North Twitter and Instagram feeds, and I would most appreciate it if you could tell me what you think. It could just be a mere trick of the light, or a bit of dirt reflecting off the light on the camera lens or something like that, but it appears to move independently of the way in which I'm moving the camera. But have a look, and please do contact me with your thoughts from inside your brains. The guide I spoke to also mentioned another room called the Edward I room, which is the castle's oldest stateroom, named after Edward Longshanks from when he visited on his way to the Battle of Falkirk. It was Falkirk, apparently. That's where he was off to when he stayed over at the castle. Probably to find some aliens. Bieri told me, um, the guide, that that particular room is one that gives people the most creeps whenever they enter it. The caretaker is reported to have seen a soldier standing in a corner of the room as she was cleaning it, and a visitor's testimony, included on the Chillingham Castle website, states that they heard whispering in there when no one else was around. I myself went into this room and took another video in the hope of some more orbs, but sadly there were none. It is eerie, however. There's a gallery up above that looks down on you, so it's quite high-ceilinged. And high-ceilinged rooms can make you feel a little creepy, especially in old buildings, but I didn't see anything, unfortunately. But I'll, I'll still share the video I took if anyone would like to comment on anything I've missed. So please look out for that amidst all the other things I've promised to share. Martin makes a special guest appearance, but I'll have to check with him. He might not want you to see his face. We'll see. I might, uh, I might edit it badly. One of Chillingham's most famous ghosts, however, who everyone seems to agree upon with regards to its location, is that of the Radiant Boy, the apparition of a child who haunts the castle's pink room, a room that is unfortunately not open to the public. Though more recent inhabitants and visitors have encountered paranormal activity inside this room, Lady Tankerville herself also writes that the Radiant Boy has been haunting her home for centuries. In her own words, she states, There, when from the clock tower the hour of midnight sounded, were heard the cries and moans of a child in pain, and in agony of fear. Always the noises came from a spot nearest to a passage cut through the ten feet thick wall into the adjoining tower, and as the blood-curdling cries died slowly away, a bright halo of light began to form close to the old four-poster bed. Anyone sleeping there saw, gently approaching them, the figure of a young boy dressed in blue and surrounded by light. It was in this wall that the bones of a boy of tender years and some fragments of a blue dress were discovered. When the bones of the blue boy had been unearthed, or unwalled, shall we say, they were buried in consecrated ground after which the apparition was reportedly never seen again. However, Sir Humphrey, in his introduction to Lady Tankerville's spooky pamphlet, says that this is not in fact the case. He states that more recent guests staying in the pink room have told him of a blue flash that wakes them up at night, which, at the time, they presume to be the result of an electrical fault, 
However, there are in fact no electrics present in the wall from which the blue flash originates, leading Sir Humphrey to suspect there still may be some radiant boy bones left inside it somewhere. I also found on Instagram an account by a guy, well the account is from someone that this guy knows, his Instagram handle is Frogman Photos, and he's a Northumberland based photographer and he recently uploaded a post by one eyewitness that he is acquaintances with who stayed at Chillingham Castle and in the room that they stayed, which is most probably the pink room, they encountered something similar and so I'll read it out for you now, I'll read out what Frogman Photos has put here. He says, I have heard many tales of strange blue lights at Chillingham. The latest was last weekend from an eyewitness who told me a room that he and his two companions were in suddenly lit up with blue light before the sound of running feet and the floor rug wrinkled up as though an invisible entity had just scurried off it. <laughs> That's frogman photos. But yeah, the wrinkling rug. Very frightening indeed. Chillingham Castle's second most famous ghost is that of Lady Mary Berkeley, wife of Lord Ford Grey, the first Earl of Tankerville. Lord Grey, naughty, began an affair in 1861 with Lady Mary's sister Henrietta Berkeley, which, after its discovery by her mother, became a much publicised lawsuit during the reign of King Charles II, after her father, George Berkeley, 1st Earl of Berkeley, sued Lord Grey in 1862 for conspiring to debauch his daughter. In the wake of this deception by her own sister and husband, Lady Mary was left abandoned at Chillingham Castle with only her baby daughter for a companion. To this day, the rustle of her dress is often heard gliding along corridors and staircases, accompanied by a chilling cold that permeates witnesses right through to their very core. Four. Sir Humphrey writes that a painting of Lady Mary Berkeley that was sold by the family in 1933, long before his ownership of the castle, would escape from inside the frame that housed her portrait and walk about the castle, terrorising its inhabitants. Whether she meant to terrorise them or not will forever be a mystery, but nonetheless, terrorise them she did. This picture was called The Walking Portrait and it was said to disturb the peace during Lady Tankerville's time as well because she mentions it in her writings and I'm going to read this out as she's had it printed because I think it's best if I leave her words as they are for fear of making them sound less impactful than intended. In brackets, there was a rather remarkable episode a few years back in connection with a family portrait which was said to walk. Not only had our nursery been disturbed by the restlessness of this picture, but the children of friends and their nurse declared that she stepped out of her frame and frightened them by following them about. When, soon after, a well-known psychologist came as a guest, my husband told him this story and he asked to be taken there after everyone had gone to bed. Late that night, they went over to where the picture used to hang and he sat for a couple of hours waiting for her ladyship to appear, his host being in the next room meanwhile. As they came out, he was laughingly asked if he had seen anything. Nothing malefic, was his reply, and that seemed final, but the following morning, while going through the rooms, he paused before an oil painting and exclaimed, 
That is the woman I saw last night. This puzzled Lord Tankerville, and he replied, It is not the one who is said to walk. Well, answered his guest, that is the one I saw. Later, in the same day, my husband spoke of it to his old nurse, who is still with us, and she at once explained, Oh, my lord! <laughs> oh, my lord, don't you know? That is a portrait of the same lady, only done when she was much older. In a root, I don't know why I did that, um, <laughs> voice <laughs> for a nurse. Mm, sorry, I'm just rubbing my eye. That's what that sound was. There you go, a fully rubbed eye. In a room called, th this is another story. In a room called the inner pantry, where silver was once stored, requiring a footman to stay there at all times in order to guard it, a frail white figure was often seen and is still appearing to frightened residents of Chillingham Castle. The most well-known story about this ghost is a tale that came from one of the footmen required to sleep in this room back in the day when the silver needed protecting. One night, just as he was about to drop off to sleep, he was approached by a lady in white who asked him for a glass of water. Presuming her to be one of the castle's many visitors, he promptly turned to accommodate her request, remembering, however, as he did so, that the room was locked from the inside, with no way for anyone else but he to gain entry. Upon spinning back round, the footman found the lady had completely vanished, while the same pale figure is still seen today, with many believing that the apparition's longing for water to be rooted in an act of slow poisoning suffered by the victim while they were alive. God. Poor thing. There's a nice little bit at the end of Lady Tankerville's pamphlet. We haven't reached the end of the episode. Uh, we're just talking about the end of the pamphlet. Um, but I'll read it out to you because it's, it's, a poet, it's a very poetic little piece. It's not too distant from my own thoughts about what ghosts or the sight of supposed spirits and apparitions could be. As I've said before, I wonder if they're an echo or recording from the past. That's just one theory. I don't, I'm not saying that all, all apparitions conform to this idea. But I, I wonder if they're an echo or recording from the past, or perhaps even the future, a recording from the future. And this passage from Lady Tankerville's writings about her own ideas and feelings about the phantoms that may exist in some form around us really resonated with me. And it's a paragraph that she's crafted in response to a question she was often asked, which was, Have you ever seen a ghost? Do you believe in them? To which she responds quite firmly, Yes. And she elaborates further by giving the following view. And I won't read every bit of it, because it's, it's quite long. I'll just read the bits <laughs> that I like best. Ahem. I won't do a posh lady voice. Presuming that Lady Tankerville had a posh lady voice. Here we go. As to believing, in these days, why not believe, when modern science daily brings before us marvels far more remarkable and weird than any ghostly apparition could have seemed to my own respected grandfather? What would that wise old gentleman have said about my sanity had I told him that in a magic box called gramophone I could daily hear music and songs and speeches of the past or present? Those too are ghosts. What of the films? Whereon we all see phantoms, not the men and women themselves, but their wraiths, emotions and actions, 
not of the moment, but of the past relived before us. Among that ghosts and apparitions that people speak of, there seem to be about as many sorts as there are reasons, or rather causes for their appearance. Every kind of strong feeling and violent emotion is pictured in bewildering variety amongst the waves of thought vibration in which we live. The disturbing noisy spook generally seems to depend on the presence, for its manifestations, of someone who is consciously or unconsciously mediumistic. Of other types, there are three most commonly met with, namely the appearance at a distance of a person at the hour of death, the seeming return of a spirit with some unfulfilled desire, and thirdly, the picture that has been photographed upon the unseen by intense emotion and which, under certain conditions, is capable, like a cinema film, of being reproduced. Uh, She then goes on to talk about her personal paranormal experiences. A few of her very own doorstep ghosts from within the grounds of her home at Chillingham Castle, and I'll use these as our grand finale with which to finish this quite fascinating episode on. The first doorstep ghost, Lady Tankerville tells us, is about the ghost of a soldier whom she believed visited her in her bedroom. Not like that. My boiler's just come on, but I'm gonna mask it with ghost sounds. Stupid boiler. At around just after midnight, as she was brushing her hair, she became aware of a sudden presence at her side. The presence she so acutely felt was, she was sure of it, the figure of a young officer whom she knew, at the time, to be suffering from severe illness. As she recoiled in shock, scrabbling for her dressing gown, daring not to look at the spot where she felt the presence lingered, the sensation she had of someone watching her suddenly left, and she found the room to be completely empty. Upon telling her husband of all she'd experienced, he informed her of the soldier's death which had occurred within the very hour in which the visitation had taken place. Her second ghost story happened on the very first day she ever set eyes on Chillingham. In a dream, that is. This dream occurred some months after she met her future husband, though she had no real expectation of ever meeting him again. She knew nothing about the castle, nothing about the way it looked, but in hindsight, much later on, she recognised the castle from her dream as being the castle she would eventually call home. From within the dream, a young man came forward and introduced himself as her future husband's brother, and said, I have come to walk with you until George is ready. George is her future husband. Years later, Lady Tankerville recognised this man from photographs she was afterwards shown as her husband's brother, whom she had never seen a likeness of before, and who had died two years earlier. The third doorstep ghost story happened just before the First World War, and occurred one morning as Lady T, I feel like we're friends now, so I'm going to call her Lady T. Lady T was resting in a room facing the Cheviot Hills, when suddenly, from the chimney, came the sound of booming wind, and the vision of a woman she could not explain the presence of, walking on the parapet of one of the castle's towers, which she could see through the window she was facing. She was wearing what appeared to Lady T like the clothes of a Dominican abbess, and as she gazed at the hills, she bent down to pray beside the battlements. 
By this time, the figure of a man had also appeared, scanning the horizon, while two men in Henry VIII-style court dress stood behind. The boiler's off now. Another woman then materialised to bring the abbess an ermine cape, and upon speaking to them, which she apparently did, this is Lady T, she spoke to them, I don't know how, if she was inside behind a window, but she spoke to them anyway, and when she did, they stopped and looked at her, and it was at this point she realised the man, wearing an outfit that was clearly from about four centuries ago, was wearing her husband's face. Ah! As in, his face had the exact appearance of her husband's. Not that he was buffalo billing it with the skin of her <laughs> husband's face. <laughs> but yeah, those were good stories, weren't they? And, and that's, that's, what I've, that's what I've got. Those are the stories from Chillingham Castle. There's probably more. If you got more, if anyone has more, if the listener has more, we could always do with more. Email me at all the various contacts that I spout on about when I'm talking on here. Do that, but also, if you've never been to Chillingham Castle, please do go visit it. <laughs> Google it for directions on how to get there from where you live. Driving around the area of Northumberland is incredibly easy. There's literally nowhere that's complicated to get to, and I should know, because I'm not a fan of complicated driving at all. It's very atmospheric, very woody, down a long, gravelled path, and you can walk to the castle from the car park. They, they have a very spacious car park, situated inside the woods that surround it, and you can walk through the woods to the castle entrance if you don't want to walk down the drive. They have a lovely tea room, the Minstrel's Hall, as I said earlier, I had a cake and a coffee in there, and it was great. That's where the big witcher fire is. There's another fireplace in there too, which seems to be kept for more decorative purposes, but there's, there's also a strange hole in the stonework which I'll upload, because when I was a kid, there used to be a little notice next to this hole saying that when workmen were excavating it in days gone by, a toad, a living, breathing toad, jumped out of this hole suddenly, and hopped away. It was literally a toad in a hole, <laughs> but the notice said that it still haunts the hole, this toad, and that visitors and staff have seen its ghost in and around it ever since. The notice is gone now, and I, I can't find any reference to it online, but I swear that notice used to be there when I was a child, though I've never seen the toad ghost myself. I don't know why they've taken it down, Maybe they just think it's silly, but it's a shame because it's, it's my favourite Chillingham Castle ghost. <laughs> they do accommodation. You can stay in Chillingham Castle. They've got a range of ambient apartments. Probably a, probably the pink room is one of these. Uh, they, they befit the mood of the place perfectly and, uh, you know, judging from the photographs that I've seen online. And according to Sir Humphrey, one of them, at least, is haunted by the sound of a crying baby. So if you're interested in phantom hunting, you may even capture some interesting paranormal footage. They also do ghost tours, something I wish I'd realised when I was up there, but perhaps next time I'll get to go on one. If you don't think you'll get up there, or if travelling to Northumberland isn't for you at this present time, Chillingham Castle has been on BBC's Most Haunted, as all infamously haunted British places have. So I'll add that episode, that Most Haunted episode, to the Very Scary VT playlist on our YouTube channel as soon as this episode is aired. I haven't watched it myself yet, so I think I'll put it on when I finish talking, and we can watch it together, can't we? So I'll go do that now, which means... Bye. Bye bye everyone, and thanks for listening. Thanks also 
for letting me inject a bit of Northern Soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones, and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live Chillingham and all who haunt her, and may her power forever compel you to never presume that almost 100 years on from telling stories about the ghosts who haunt her home, that Lady T, Leonora Sophia Van Marta, hasn't become one of them herself. See you later. Bye!